My name is Steve. I'm one of the elders here at Echo. I'm glad that you're here today. We are in the midst of just kind of uh, not in the midst of a teaching series right now. We're going to actually hit one of those right after Labor Day, um, a series called Throughout the Hills that we'll introduce to you soon. And then we will be in the book of Colossians the majority of the fall. Bear with us, y'all. We're getting there. That's better, right? That feels like it's resonating from inside your head, doesn't it? And not at all intimidating. So anyways, we're, we're going to do a series called Throughout the Hills in September. We're going to be studying the book of Colossians throughout the fall. And before you know it, Christmas will be here. So get on top of that. Getting here this morning, though, it, there's always these things that you recognize and, uh, about yourself, about who you are. And the one thing that I've recognized is that I have a weak, weak selfie game. Um, and we'll see if I can. It'll be hilarious if these batteries died again, too. Like, it, I... I, it really did. There we go. How, we, how are we? Yeah. I don't know if you can tell. I really have a weak selfie game. There's something wherein my arm doesn't work right. Or maybe it's the idea that you have to push that. And then, you know, I'm actually a pretty good photographer, but I'm horrible at, like, being in pictures. And usually the only time I take selfies is with my daughter anyways. So I have that working for me. I'm going to um, take a selfie because I was at the FC game. And it was the night before school started, so my wife and daughter didn't join us because we wanted our daughter to be in a state of healthfulness uh, on that first day. And that game went late, too. So when you go to those games, the, um, your phone, you just do not have the service that you want in the game. So we're trying to, like, call, and you can't hear, and we're trying to text. And finally, after they scored a goal, I was like, I will just relay my excitement through a selfie. And I took this picture of myself after they scored an elation. This is supposed to be great. So now this is what's great about it, is that I had no idea. So I just hit it and send, and I had no idea. But do you see her back here? Do you, do you see the face that this young woman has? And by the way, before I took this, I had just high-fived her, and she was just still kind of like sitting like that, which is funny because I get your level of disengagement, and if you're going to be disengaged but have face paint on, I, I, I don't see congruency there. I don't know if you're any good at selfies. I don't know if you take them yourselves. It's funny that it used to be this thing of total vanity, but now it's become more and more couth, Right? Like the president of the United States one point with world leaders was like, here, I'll, I'll, I'll take a selfie, which is that, that's amazing too. I think Molly, uh, who is part of our church, had like Hillary Clinton like took a selfie of her. Like Hillary had the phone and took it. Like that's, that's pretty crazy. I don't know if you remember back in 2014 at the Academy Awards, up until that time, the most retweeted photo in history was this of you know, stars right there. But what's interesting is, is as much as it's becoming part of our regular life, there is this level of inappropriateness that sometimes follow that. And case in point, um, you know, I, I remember seeing the picture on the left at one point where it was Ash Wednesday and the young ladies are just like, you know, nothing like an Ash Wednesday selfie, which is kind of funny because the point of Ash Wednesday is supposed to be, you know, like, you know, really kind of like divesting yourself of, uh, of yourself for the sake of Christ. That, you know, I don't miss it. The other thing, and this is something that happened to us when we were in Europe and I could not grasp it, but people have begun showing up at like uh, uh, cemeteries or, the, or they go to memorials and they take selfies of themselves in front of it. So 
the couple here face blurred for anonymity, even though it, this is over in Europe. This is a Holocaust memorial that, you know, somebody just said, this is a good idea for me to take a selfie in front of the, a Holocaust memorial. Like, it, it's, we are at the point now where we're so ingrained with the idea that we should just go ahead and push and take a picture of ourselves that we've stopped asking, is this really a good idea at all? Which begs the question for us, and I do, before I hit there, I did have, thank goodness, that the people of our past did not have access to technology, or is it, because that's the question I think is, is it that we today are more narcissistic than any other society that has ever lived, or is it that the technology just makes it more evident that we're as narcissistic as everyone else who has ever lived? And that's why this morning we're going to be in a book of the Bible in order to examine this. We're in the book of Numbers, which is in the Old Testament. We're going to be in Numbers chapter 13 to start. We have blue Bibles in the pews. You can uh, pull it up through your digitized version. Does anybody have a page number for me for that? Numbers chapter 13 in the blue Bible. One more time. 104, page 104 in the blue Bible. You can tell this is in the Old Testament because it's near the beginning, so this is in a time before Jesus was born. This is one of the books of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books. It's called the books of Moses. And this is after that seminal event within biblical history, the Exodus. Okay, so we actually, you know, it's been a little while, so I'm going to go map on you. But we had the people of God who originally, let's see if the laser pointer, you can barely see it, but here's some laser pointer action. This is the promised land that God had given them, but because of some tricks that some brothers played on one of their brother, you know, this trick that, you know, we're going to pretend our brother's dead, they somehow end up in the land of Egypt, and in Egypt they are enslaved And Moses rises up and leads them out, and they take a journey. We don't know exactly where they cross the Red Sea, but they cross there. They head to this southernmost point, which is likely around the location of Horeb, which is the mountain of God where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And then they are back off to the promised land. This is the land, and when we say promised, going back generationally, First book of the Bible, in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, 13, the Lord said to Abraham, look around you from where you are to the north, south, east, and west. All of this land will be yours. This is the land that was promised to them. So here we are, is that it's been generations. They were promised the land. Abraham's descendants jack things up. They end up slaves. God has freed them. And now they are ready to finally take possession of the land that God has promised to them. And here we are in chapters number and in, in Numbers chapter 13, where we're introduced to this story. So Evan's going to read out loud for us. Evan, if you will read verses 17 to 20, please. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. 
So this process is helping Moses to contextualize the promised land. Contextualization, our means of interpreting an environment. So what Moses wants to know is this land that he himself has never set eyes on. He wants to know how the land is. And in knowing that information, then he can understand better what lies before the people, contextualization. So notice the questions that Moses is just asking of these people that he will send into the promised land. He tells them to go look around, see, give us an idea of the people, give us an idea of the fertility of the land, how strong and prosperous they are. Understand this, Moses' objective in this report wasn't that he was worried about military tactics. He was not concerned with how are we going to conquer them. He wanted to get an idea of this. Is the promised land as good as a promise should be? Is this really a fertile place where our people can stop and grow and become who God has promised us to to be? And we see that as the report comes back, it is a good report. Because as they went, they saw so much prosperity that they brought some back home with them. They cut off a branch, bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. So, you know, I don't know how you shop for grapes at the Kroger, right? But usually when I do that, I put it in a little bag. I don't say, hey, get your grape pole and fasten it upon it. So there's something about these grapes and, you know, is this an exaggeration for literary perhaps? But the concept is supposed to be is that these are some big ass grapes, right? Like huge grapes. These aren't normal grapes. And there's a bonus to that then. It's the understanding is that if this exists right here, then it will be plentiful throughout all the land. I wish that was the end of the story, but it never is the end of the story. Evan, go ahead and read Verse 27 and verse 28. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. All right. We have this reference right here, this reference to a land flowing with milk and honey. Sounds sticky, right? What it speaks to is agriculture. What this is saying is there's a certain prosperity to this land that is absolutely incredible. It's interesting for us who have this vision of like the land where the Bible took place. We always think of it as very deserty, right? Like there's these rocky cliffs, there's no real grass or fertility, but understand is that the vast majority of the promised land is actually incredibly verdant and green. We were there in 2005, and that's one of the things I was most surprised about. It's not that there aren't areas of wilderness where it is rocky and desert-like, but a lot of it is fertile, and it's really some of the best farming land in the earth. Climate-wise, it's probably equivalent, you know, in in the Americas to like your North Carolina, you know, something where it will get cold every once in a while. But overall, it's a wonderful climate in which to be. So as They had gone through in search. It is very plentiful. This land is looking great, but, asterisk, however, there are people living here, and those people are not ordinary people. They're powerful, and their cities are large and fortified. 
And we talked about this in previous weeks, but recognize in the ancient times the power of cities is very important because cities were for provision and protection prosperity so that you would do business in there, but it also would provide protection. So interesting, I'm going to just show you a random city from the promised land, the city of Mauritia. I've actually been to Mauritia. It has, it, they do archaeology there to find out the, the, what, how people lived thousands of years ago. And I don't know if you can tell because you see there's a circle here. doesn't look like much of a city. It wasn't a robust, huge, bustling city, but a few thousand people would have lived there. And you can't really view it on the overlay, but there's a topography to where Mauritia rises up and it sits on top of a hill. And around that hill, where they've done some excavation right here, he actually made it even higher and more protected. So therefore, it was a well-defended city. And those cities, if you are conducting military conquest, are very hard to capture. That's one of the reasons that a little later, if you know the biblical story of Jericho, where God tells the people, hey, capture that walled city on a hill. And they're like, all right. And he goes, walk around it. And the miracle is when the walls fell down, the walls were the utmost protection. If you were going to attack an area, you didn't want to see Mauritia. You didn't want to see a walled city that was very protected. Now, if you look back at verse 27 and 28, there's something that's interesting here that needs to be noted. There were 12 spies that were sent out to look at it, and here there is no descent on the data. They all saw the same thing. They all saw the plentiful nature of the land. They saw the protected walled cities. This is important because recognize in this data quant era in which we live, you're always looking at what do the signs say? And the signs say here, this is a place that is plentiful, but it is going to be very difficult. The next argument isn't about the nature of the land. It's about the interpretation of the data. Evan, read verse 30 of Numbers 13. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. We all know a Caleb, right? We all know somebody like that who's just like, Hey, things are looking tough, and they're like, Screw it! We should do it! Let's do it! Do it! Because we can win! And there's always that person, you're like, they're a little too overhyped. But you got to love Caleb, right? Because Caleb is on board with this. He's like, look, I went through the lands. I saw the plentifulness, but I also saw those cities. But you know what the good news is? Is that we can win. Now, we have to stop and just say, was was Caleb driven by testosterone here? Was this all this amped up, roided experience that led him to say, we need to, we go and kill and conquer No, it was because Caleb recognized what God had promised to the people that he said, this is your land. In Exodus chapter 6, I will bring you, this is the word of the Lord, God says, I'll bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession to the Lord. Caleb's gumption is not related to human power, but through the power of the promise of God in this situation. What Caleb recognizes is, is, look, we can do this not because we are exemplary. We can do this because this is what God has promised to us. 
And when God makes a promise, he doesn't break his promise. We are the people who get to experience this. And Caleb says, let's go and do it. Let's get it done. Verse 31, Evan, to see how the others responded. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. In this situation, Caleb is not alone. He is joined by Joshua. Again, you, if you recognize that name, he's, uh, there's a book with his name on it later. These are the two of the 12 that said, we can do this. However, the vast majority, 10 of 12, were negative. We cannot attack those people. They're stronger than we are. One of the things I always find myself when I'm uh, going back and reading the scriptures, I find myself in a, in, in a mood of critique against the people because I'm like, wimps, you know, like God promised you, why wouldn't you do it? And it's easy for us to say because, okay, we're like, that's the theme of this book is God's promises and us following through. But there's a real life nature to this. Recognize, and if you go back and watch that path that we showed on the map where God's people were slaves, they were farmers, they were laborers, and now what we're looking at is they're having an extreme shift in who they need to be. God's saying, okay, now you're no longer going to be laborers and farmers, I need you to be warriors. And I think they loved the concept of the promised land and the prosperity that happened. I don't think they wanted to take the risk, especially the risk of their life to ensure that they could take the land. So I have to pause here, and as much as I want to criticize these people that I'll you know, never meet, and want to say they did not have the faith, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and say sometimes life is hard, sometimes I need to have greater faith than I do, sometimes I just bail out of God's promises because I, 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 I don't trust enough. We could pause and do that, there's a problem is that they don't let that doubt just stay. They actually make it active and further its agenda. Evan, if you will, read verses 32 and 33. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So again, they take it a step further, and then they're like, not only are we going to have this view, but we are going to disseminate our view to the masses so that we can convince everybody, like, nope, this ain't good, it's not happening, let's just turn back, all right? It's funny, you don't know what their end game is. It's like, okay, if we're not going to go there, then where are we going to go? Let's just live in tents forever and, and keep moving around. They had no end game, but they were so certain that this was not the best option for them that they started to spread rumors. And note this too, and it's difficult because we, have we haven't gone through the, the whole book or even all of these books of the Bible preceding it, but there's these people that are referred to twice called the Nephilim. And we see the introduction of the Nephilim in the earliest parts of Genesis. And to this day, biblical scholars aren't entirely sure who the Nephilim were or how they acted. But the one thing that we get through the inference right here is that the people of the earth, whether they were real or imaginary, feared the concept of the Nephilim because they were supposed to be giant-like people who roamed the earth and kicked rear end and took names. Like, they were frightening people. 
What's very interesting is that we know that the Nephilim did not live in the promised land at this time. Nothing historically, archaeologically, from any other text right now would say that the Nephilim actually were living in the land. What these dudes were doing is they're just like, let's make up a story that's so flippin' scary that people will be like, nope, we're not going to do this. And they're like, what frightens people more than anything? Them good old Nephilim. So they're like, dude, we saw them there. They were massive. And they go to this further extent where they say, we were like grasshoppers and their big old clawed hopper feet could step and squash. It's just horrible. The worst. We can't take that land. They are too, too big for us. I like to think that if today, instead of going, you know, like through person to person, they would have started a vicious social media campaign on the Twitters. You know, I don't know if this, this is the way that I saw it. I don't know. That, that's, that benefits those who are closer to the front because there's a little, there's a few little gems right there. Retweet frowny face it's this idea that they were like it's not just good enough that we don't go we need everybody to buy into this because that's not why 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 were they wrong because this is what happens they were criticizing possibility they were criticizing vehemently something that they didn't know remember they were making things up as they went along and reporting this why? Because they wanted to dissuade people from wanting to do this. And yet this is what happens to you and I very oftentimes when fear grips us because of something that lies ahead, of something that we've never experienced. We begin to criticize the entire possibility so that we feel justified in not pursuing something that's difficult or scary. And this is textbook right here. Instead of trusting the promise of God they gave into a cynicism that infected them in every aspect of their lives. Now, what I want to do is pause in this aspect. We're going to skip ahead a little bit here. And Evan, we're going to read uh, in chapter 14. So there, I'm, I'm not skipping over, you know, I can't go over all of it. You can go back and read it. You're allowed. But I want to move ahead in the story to Numbers 14, verses 21 to 23, to see where we go here. Go ahead, friend. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. The cost of their doubt in God's promise was the very loss of the land itself. They lost the ability to see this promised land and to live there and to dwell there. Why? Because of their extreme cynicism. And I would venture to say, in a preacher way, that cynicism is the ideological cancer of our age. Etymologically, it comes from the word canine. And as much as we Americans love our little puppies and dogs, recognize that the broad history of animal, of dogs, were their role as scavengers, as, as, as nuisances, as, as a source for potential violence before they were domesticated. And that's why, you know, and, and even though some of you who are dog owners, as much as you love your scruffy, 
little puppy that sometimes you'll see that emerge with them when they get a hold of your slipper and violently torment it to pieces. So there's this idea that what cynicism does, it just takes what exists and ravages it and, and tears it apart so it's no longer recognizable. And friends, that's, uh, that's the age and where we are. And this is the aspect of the technology that has changed everything, Right? Think about it, you used to be able to go, and maybe some of you don't remember this area, era, so I'm in my 40s, so it works out. But I used to remember going to a really bad movie and then walking out and being like, that was a horrible, horrible movie. Dante's Peak, watch it. I paid to watch it, and I left thinking that I had been fleeced out of my funds. But you know what I did? I moved over, to, you know, I looked at my friends, and I was like, that was horrible. And they said, yes. And then we went to the arcade or whatever we did back in the 90s. Here's what's interesting is that now you can be in a movie and be like, this is horrible. You don't even have to wait to leave the theater. You can look up the you know, director or the actor, actress's Twitter handle and criticize them in real life. And as much as some of those actors and actresses have other people that run there, there's a good possibility that they can know in real time how horrible a job you think that they performed. And by the way, we do that sometimes, right? Like even, and you're like, well, that's a little extreme. I was like, friends, if something bad is happening to my, my, my life, like if I'm missing a connecting flight or something's crazy, I'm going to go, you know, at American Airlines and, and put that out there automatically because I'm like, this will motivate and move them to action. But what that's done for me, it's, it's cultivated in me a posture of critique and cynicism because I realize that I have a voice and it counts and somebody might listen to it. I worked for 10 years at a seminary and it was always very interesting because the nature of 18, 19, 20 year olds does not change much because it's that point where we're transitioning into adulthood and we're learning all these wonderful new things but we haven't really formulated the idea that there's a lot that we don't know yet so we are more prone to saying things. And I remember one time there's a beloved, it's a professor, his name's Dan Dyke. He's, he's taught, preached at this church before. And I remember being on the hallway one day and this guy is, he is, you know, the Niagara Falls of spiritual wisdom. Like you just, it, it would crush you that it's so great. And I remember him talking in the hall one day and this 19 year old kid telling him, well, you really don't understand this. And I just wanted to be like, I should kill him now. Because at 19, he was like, no, I'm, I'm going to address this man in his 60s and tell him how the world really works and operates. And again, as much as I can do that, the reason that it's fun to tell that story because it's not about me. And I lived that. And if you survived through that period in life, you too live that where you're like, I know everything and I need to tell everybody how much I know. The issue becomes as we age and mature and we still don't understand that cynicism as a default harms the very life that we lead. You know, this is, I, I was like, what are three things about cynicism? I'm just saying, like, what are, these, what are these marks? And, you know, I didn't even alliterate this well, so this is like, don't read into it. Like, this is just a list. Like, I wish I could, I should go back and work on this harder, but you're getting it. Don't be cynical. First thing is we're always complaining, right? You know those people. You know those people who can take, boy, it's a beautiful day, and you're like, yeah, but my barometer says the humidity is a little high. I mean, you know, it's just not good, you know? Like, 
hey, how was your week? Oh, you know, it's like, I won the lottery this week, but man, my car broke down. It was just the worst, you know? Like, they figure out how to flip it and turn it into anything. Now, a, a few things about this. Again, for us in the deconstruction era, we're always like, you're thinking right now, it's like, oh, that's like my friend or my family member who always complains. But we have to ask ourselves, do we sometimes take that posture ourselves? I do. There are moments where I just find myself and I was like, the world is just a horrible, horrible place and I want to make sure that everybody knows even worse than complaining, sometimes we can develop a superiority complex. When your voice is constantly heard and you feel that people are paying attention to you, there sometimes develops within yourself an identity that says, I am actually better than these people to whom I am talking. And you can see that at varying levels, right? We can go back to the celebrity levels. That's one of the things that changes it, right? Is because they're told by everybody how amazing they are and you start to buy into the hype. Just last week, we were, we were talking about one of the uh, Roman emperors, right? The Roman emperors actually believed that they were gods and you, you're like, that's insane. But you're like, can you blame them? Because when everybody believes that you're awesome, you start to buy into the hype and you view yourself as being superior to them. And when I live life that way, I have the chance to be even more cynical. And here's the key one I think just wraps all this is the idea of self-involvement. And again, this is the most difficult thing I believe that we will have to struggle with over the next decades within our lives. But in an era, and I have some marketing background in my career, but in an era where we're told to personally brand, in a time where you're told to elevate yourself, in a time when we're told that you need to, you know, make sure that you're doing what's best for you. I'm working in a job that makes me happy and fulfilled, right? All these things can lead us into this posture of self-involvement that can take over everything in our lives. Cynicism is born not necessarily in the critique, but in our focus on ourselves. So that's why doing the full circle with talking about the concept of a selfie, why can that be bad? It depends what we're doing. I mean, it doesn't mean it's wrong for us to be joyous and celebrate, but if we're doing it because we want other people to lust for the life that we lead, if we're trying to elevate ourselves within the process, then what that is doing is it's making the focus on us. So recognize this. So the next time you see, you know, the next time you feel that need to grab the camera and reverse it and you take a good picture of yourself, that does not mean that you are evil. But it should be a good opportunity for you to look in the mirror and say, am I focusing too much on self? Because friend, the next inevitable step toward that is me then seeing a world that doesn't work out my way and becoming cynical toward that. When I'm so self-involved that I can't see Jesus in my life and the need for humility, then I will look at the rest of the world and doubt whether it's fair or if it should exist at all because it's not the way that I want to. Let me go back a, a little bit on this and talk about how we need to redeem uh, cynicism. And I want to do that uh, within the framework of a quote of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who has been receiving some uh, more attention than he has uh, maybe in previous years because he was a minister, uh, a theologian 
and uh, was from Germany. He came over, taught seminary in the United States, and at the height of the Third Reich, he decided to go back to Germany to help the church there, and it cost him his life in a concentration camp. In his book, Life Together, he writes this, just as sure... Surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and with ourselves. And I think that's the... Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. It begins to grasp in faith the promise that's given to it. The sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Bonhoeffer proposes for us that cynicism can be transformative if we follow it to its biblical end. And what does that look like? It takes us to realize that if we realize that the people around us are truly flawed, and if we realize that all of creation is flawed, and especially, finally, then we come to this realization that we are flawed more than any of them, then we can recognize and embrace the good news of Jesus, the gospel. It's me stopping the disillusionment of the world and focusing on how I can let Jesus live through my life. The Apostle Paul does the maybe greatest statement of this because recognize that Paul was the most prolific author of the Bible. And I think God chose him specifically because of his past. So when he writes in 1 Timothy 1.15 that Christ Jesus came to the world to save all sinners and I'm the worst, he owned it. He owned it. So what we need to do is find a posture in the face of cynicism to be able to live confidently in Christ. Understanding that's not about me, but it's about God using me as a vessel to complete some things. Can I, can I go here? And I don't know if I have this up here. Let me tell you in Joshua chapter 14. That's the next couple books later. And we revisit the situation and that guy, Caleb, Remember Caleb, who was ready to charge hell with a squirt gun, right? Like this guy who is ready to meet the challenge. We read this reflection of him. Here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still strong today as the day Moses sent me out in, on that mission to go and be a spy in the land. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country the Lord promised me that day. You've heard that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. I love this dude. Because, you know, again, you're like, the dude is still as testosterone driven as he was when he spied the land, but put it within focus. The dude's 85 now, right? They had this wandering in the wilderness where God said, because you didn't believe the land's good enough, I'm going to kill out this whole generation. Only a couple of you, Caleb and Joshua, are going to be able to take the land. So Caleb finally makes it to the promised land, and he's like, time to get to work. He's like, you know what? I've, you know, I've got, I've got killing Anakites on my mind, and it, it, it's getting done. You know, he probably had to, you know, he's strapping on his knife. He's putting on his depends. He's ready to go back into battle, right? Just at this point. Do you know why I love this dude? Because, again, is it just about his 
fortitude? No, it comes down to the idea that he is just saying, look, God has promised. Why can't I just own God's promise? Now, this might seem nuanced because you're like, how self-involved is Caleb that he's just like, I'm going to get this done. But recognize that the basis of his confidence is not in who he is, but it's in the reality of what God has promised and who God is. And that might seem nuanced, friends, but that's the key for us living powerful lives of promise. So this is the thing I'm going to ask you today is, um, how cynical, self-involved do you really believe about yourself? Uh, that, uh, do you really think that you are? How do you perceive and view yourself? And again, the difficult thing about an exercise like this is that we tend to make ourselves look better by comparing ourselves to other people. So for this exercise this week, as you're really looking in the mirror and just say, how self-involved am I? Just be brutally honest. No one has to know but you. And then I would say is, how can you transform that in your life this week? There is, in my opinion, no greater opportunity to change that than to live a life of love and service to others. And that's what we see modeled in the life of Jesus Christ, true? That he came to seek and save. That Jesus brought with him all the power of heaven at his disposal. And yet he chose to live life humbly. And even made himself humble to death at the hands of his creation because of his great love for us. He is not only our example... He's our savior. And that's why as we conclude worship as we do every week, we're gonna have a time of communion. We're going to have a prayer. We're gonna pass around these trays and we're gonna have the opportunity for us through the bread and the cup to remember Christ Jesus and his sacrifice for us. As much as we want to believe the best about ourselves, friends, we're just not there. However, Christ Jesus gives us the grace to make us whole. As he was humble, so we should be too. So we're going to have a prayer here, and then we'll pass around the trays. If you're a follower of Jesus, we'll invite you to commune. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this text here. I thank you for this lesson. I thank you, Father, that we have a chance to really look at ourselves in the mirror and to ask ourselves how we view the world in which we live. Father, it is very difficult with negative images and words around us to stay positive, but help us to recognize that just as Caleb was enthusiastic about your promise, so too should we. So we ask forgiveness of our cynicism, of places where we're too self-centered and egotistic, and we shift our eyes to the cross in your son, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not take that with him here, but humbled himself, becoming obedient to death. And now we remember him. Thank you for his love. Thank you for his sacrifice. We remember him as we commune in Christ's name. Amen.